if I protest this week, I'm still protesting for Breonna Taylor. You know, like where are, you know, her murderers? You know, like, what are we doing? You know, like I'm still protesting for Ahmaud Aubrey. I'm still protesting for George Floyd. You know, I'm still protesting for, you know, the black men who have died at the hands of the police in Portland, Oregon. You know, so like I will still be protesting, you know, and, and a lot, all of us will still be protesting. You know, it'll just be a different type of protest. You know, we won't be protesting to get federal agents out of our city, you know. Um, so like this is far from over, you know, as the federal agents leave, you know, there's still a lot to protest for, you know, and like that's exactly what we're trying to say when we're into like, you know, approaching day 70 of protesting, you know. Hey, folks, welcome back. This week, we are going to be talking to Chef Gregory Gorday, a Haitian-American restaurateur based in Portland, Oregon. He's going to tell us all about what it feels like to be on the streets of Portland, Oregon today, of what it feels like to be a restaurateur in this COVID-19 pandemic, and why the people of Portland are nearing their 80th day of straight protests. As always, I'm joined by my brother, Marcus Samuelson, Harlem, USA. My name is Jason Diakite, broadcasting from Stockholm, Sweden. And in this moment, you're listening to This Moment. What's up, everybody? You know, Harlem, Stockholm is definitely the place to be. And, you know, right now in America, people are excited. And I would say half of the country is excited about Kamala Harris and, you know, the Harris-Biden ticket. Biden wasn't really doing it for me. You know, it's not like it was definitely one of those lesser of two evils situations for me where I was like, of course, you know, we can't have four more years of Trump. But Biden was like, a, wow, that's really such a, a, you know, but all right. Yeah, if that's what we got, that's what we got. But now I'm actually feeling some excitement. Tell me about New York. Tell me about the people in the neighborhood. How do they feel? Oh, it's all straight Brooklyn, right? Because, you know, you think about Kamala Harris, like she could have been, you know, when you go to the day parade, the parade, Labor Day parade, the Caribbean parade, you know, you think about it, Indian mother, uh, Jamaican father, and and the first thing I thought about, damn, they got to be eating nice in the Harris household growing up because those two cuisines are like just a fire right there. But but it's also it also highlights kind of like what America is, right? You have the highest sets of privilege and uh, cheating his way through school and basically, you know, daddy's boy with number 45 on one side. And then you have worth ethic, uh, you know, hard work, and, uh, you know, black excellence shown through Kamala Harris, you know what I mean? And, and, and only in America can that happen. And I just think that that's the, the love-hate relationship everybody has with relationship. It's the highest of possibilities, but then it also when it's low, it's the lowest of low, you know? But for me, I think, you know, there's three very progressive things about Kamala Harris, and this is not even looking at the politics of it. And that's, number one, her gender. She's a woman. Number two, of Jamaican and Indian descent. A woman of color, a black woman, you know. And number two, which is odd to say, is that, you know, she's 55. And in this political arena of today in the United States, that's still considered young. You know, she's on, younger than 45, and she's also way younger than her, um, than Biden. Uh, so that's even before we get to the actual politics that's a progressive choice. New York is happy. California is happy. But you know, the U.S. election comes down to five states. And we'll see if Pennsylvania, Michigan, you know, Wisconsin and Florida, that's really, you know, 
essentially Ohio. Those are, you know, essentially what it comes down to. Well, I've been talking with my family. You know, my mom is from, uh, she was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania. My dad is it's born in Harlem, Harlem Hospital. Uh, and we vote, you know, I, I was born in Sweden, American citizen. I became a Swedish citizen in 2005. I pr- proudly hold both passports. I proudly rep both countries. Um, but every time it comes election time, you know, we have to start talking about it a long time before election. Because getting in, yeah, I mean, even before 45, even before everything, uh, voting in the United States is not a linear or easy thing. You know, when there's, when there's an election for parliament in Sweden, it's on election day. You take your election card that the government sends to your house. You take it. You go to your assigned place. You stand in line. You cast your vote. That's done. You don't vote for an electoral college or anything. Your vote is placed on the candidate that you want to place it on. So it's a very linear thing, but we have to start in an election year. You know, in my family, we started talking about this in March. Okay, so we got to get our absentee ballots. How are we going to do this? What's the criteria? Who's contacted the embassy? Okay, my sister's like, yeah, I spoke to them. What did they say? All right, I have to get on board. Now it's August, all right? So my mom is already... She, she was on the ball from before. My dad and I are lagging behind. And we're like, okay, how are we going to do this? Uh, we got to get our absentee ballots. The, pro, or the, 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 the issue is with absentee ballots as a lot of times they're not counted. And again, this is before 45. Let's not forget that 45 is just the latest iteration of, you know, a tradition of white supremacy a tradition of of voter suppression and so forth that has been going on long before uh, the GOP, the GOP being the grand architects of it. But let's not forget who was the the uh, white supremacist party of 100 years ago is the Democrats. So it's a complicated history in the United States. Uh, So we're looking at an election where our votes might not be counted. We're looking at an election that we feel stronger than ever, that it's important for our votes to be counted. And I'm going to say it out in the open, even though this is on a podcast. I'm trying to get my, my dad, myself, and my, sisters regi- my sister registered to vote in Pennsylvania. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so that we don't vote as absentee ballots, but that we vote as residents of Pennsylvania. Wow. So we're, gonna, we're looking into if we can do that hustle because... That's what it matters. It would be easier for us to vote as in New York State, but it's going to matter more in Pennsylvania. So that's how we're conspiring here across the sea. Well, thank you for breaking that down, because I don't think people understand how complex, you know, the election is in America and how many years of, you know, voter suppression it's been going on. And, you know, it's only going to get more and more real closer to the election. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Today, we're going to be talking to Chef Gregory Gourdet. Who is Chef Gregory oh, Gourdet? Oh, he, he's an amazing guy. He's, you know, his parents uh, were born in Haiti. He grew up in New York and, um, you know, went through that Creole, but also like, you know, grew up mostly speaking English and Creole, going back and forth. Um, incredible talented chef. But, you know, I've had his ups and downs, like, you know, the creative journey and, um, you know, opens up about his struggles with that but loves Portland, moved to Portland about 15 years ago and made that his home. And he's an icon in Portland uh, for his food, but also for his activism. And we, we touch on being a black chef. How is it to open a restaurant? Um, you'll be talking about, you know, he's just actually in between restaurants right now. He had, had one of the most successful restaurants in Portland for years, but then he wanted to take a break before the pandemic actually. And now he's starting his pop-up journey again. But Portland... It's a city for a chef that you always think about. It's very open-minded. It's great. It's a great place because things grows there, like wasabi grows there, like mushrooms grows there. It rains a lot. So for cook, people say that Portland and France, uh, aspects of France has the same climate. So that's why the wines are very good, uh, you know, out of that Oregon and, you know, close to Washington State and, and so on. So creatives love going to Portland, you know. So why it's been... You know, like you said, 80 days of this. And it's, I think it's extremely Im- impressive for the city to, for the, for the people to come out every day and, and, you know, the whole conversation around the National Guards and all of that. But what does it actually feel like to live in a city like that at this moment? Yeah, I think it's so interesting that you caught uh, Chef Gregory now in this moment, nearing the 80th day of straight protests. We've seen what that you know, reading about Portland and being one of the few cities that has been going, you know, every day, straight protest, you know, from about 100, 100, 200 people to protest within the thousands, right? And then also seeing how the federal government has reacted with brute force against these protests. I think it's really, really uh, incredible that we're going to hear Chef Gregory speak about the situation in his town right now. Check it out. Tell me a little bit about your parents' background and tell me a little bit about Haiti. Are you you considering, is Haiti at home? Is it where your parents came from? Like, where does Haiti fit into your life? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely Haitian-American. I was born in, in Brooklyn, first generation, uh, my parents moved here in their early 20s to pursue uh, careers in education. And, uh, you know, they had me pretty soon. But uh, I actually lived in Haiti when I was younger for about a year. My sister had just been born and my parents wanted to kind of get their footing, you know, working two jobs, having two kids. So they sent me to live with my uh, grandparents for a year. And that was really uh, my first experience living in Haiti when I was about four. 
Um, and I did start school there. Um, and I, I do remember uh, bits and pieces of it for sure. Uh, but yeah, but, uh, you know, I definitely call Haiti home, you know, through my adolescence, childhood and adolescence. We would summer, um, our parents would come to Haiti with us. We would all go together. Uh, we would vacation in summer, uh, you know, but I, I stopped going to Haiti um, in my early 20s and I just kind of focused on living in America. But one of my last memories of Haiti before that big gap was going to visit where my father grew up and, you know, seeing the village where he grew up with no running water and no electricity. And really that was kind of the lasting impression I had uh, 20 years, you know, after that, I, you know, I've, I've become a chef and I've, you know, worked across the country and I was able to go back, you know, um, a few years ago, um, I went back to Haiti for the first time about 22 years and actually went twice that year. Um, I went and I spent time with some relatives and some chefs and just, you know, rekindled, you know, the, my desire to just understand the culture and um, just reignited a passion to know about the food and, it just revisited so many memories of growing up and all the dishes. And, you know, I was eating food I hadn't had in about 30 years and just reconnecting with lots of cousins and, and relatives. And um, I was able to go back for a couple of weeks. And then later that year, I did a food festival with uh, about eight other Haitian chefs. So I got to cook as well. So it was a, a really good year to kind of reinsert myself in my culture. You do feel in New York and in Miami and little Haiti, where the hub is, and of course, Brooklyn, the incredible drive from Haitian Americans, uh, you know, it's 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 in the hustle, it's in the work ethic, it's in the always trying to improve. And, you know, like, you know, that's Haiti's history with beating the French, you know, like it's a it's a very strong, powerful. A lot of Haitians was in the American army very early uh, to actually to, to help fight many wars and stuff like that. There's a rich history there. I, I want to I wanna switch gears because there's so many different things that you and I can talk about. Um, one thing that you shared with me that is deeply personal that, um, you know, if, if you're not comfortable talking about it, we, we take it out. But I want to ask you, a lot of our friends in our industry um, are not going to come back. Yeah. And we had a pivotal moment in our industry and they're not going to come back because this restaurant industry is not a big profit margin to begin with. We do it because we share, we love, we're passionate about cooking, passionate about our teams, our crews, and sharing our food. Um, what do you see? What do you? What do you? You dealt a lot with addiction but you fought it and you are so strong and you come back. Is there anything from that experience that you think you take with you now that actually going to fight through that? Or is it completely compartmentalized? Like, No, I mean, I think, I think there, there's a lot. That's a great thought. Uh, I think about it almost every day, but you know, I mean, like speaking specifically of being someone in recovery you know, I think that is something that is helping tremendously through this pandemic um, and tremendously through, you know, the situation with restaurants in our industry, you know, at such a critical stage for the first time ever. You know, uh, being someone in recovery, you know, I'm someone who wants to learn from the past. I'm someone who wants to move forward. I'm someone who wants to work on myself. I'm someone who's open and ready to accept change. 
um, as hard as it may be. So, you know, and I'm also someone that perseveres because of that. So, you know, I have a lot of gratitude because I am in recovery um, and it has just instilled in me quite a desire to move forward, to accept my faults in a clear way um, and want to move forward. So, you know, I, I have a lot of gratitude because of my recovery. And you work with the best. You work with Jean-Georges and you work, you did you really did the past. I want to ask you something else. I want to, want to, again, turn page here. How did Portland come into your life? You know, and and also describe Portland. This We have listeners all over the world. And, you know, I know Portland from, you know, that's the hub of Nike. Uh, I know Portland from that a lot of cultures come from like, you know, Ace Hotel, a lot of hipness come from Portland. But like for someone who's never been to Portland, why Portland for you and what type of town is it? I have a very, very long history with Portland. When I was going to college in Montana, uh, we used to come out here and go to raves, honestly, because it's just like, you know, like 10 hours, nine hours away. So we would come out here and go to raves and stay up all night. So I've been coming to Portland for quite some time since like the late 80s, honestly. You know, I was really uh, in a transitional stage of my life. I had left New York um, after working with John George for about, you know, six years in three different restaurants. Um, I was at the height of a drug addiction, um, a drug and alcohol addiction, and I was stumbling around for about two years working at a lot of just really awful no-name restaurants. Um, I finally opened up a Spanish restaurant, Bonshu, with some friends, uh, but and I checked into rehab. So, you know, in 2007, you know, I checked myself into rehab, but I got an opportunity to move out west with some former chefs and colleagues. And... I took the opportunity. I, I did like a little few months in San Diego. Um, my drinking was really, really bad. But uh, a friend who I had gone to culinary school with, and a, a really old friend, uh, we were roommates in Queens together. He had been living in Portland already. And uh, the job opportunity to work at the Knights came up. And I, I took the opportunity. You know, I, I think I was just looking for whatever. I was just grasping for whatever at that point. You know, um, and it was, you know, it seemed like a great job. It was working with Asian flavors. That's something I had done for quite some time, working with George. But, you know, for me, everything really, really changed because I did not take that job right away. I ended up working somewhere else. And the day I walked into that job, I was going to be the, the, the executive chef. My sous chef, he told me he hadn't drank in two years. And... I had never met someone who had not drank in two years before. And I truly feel that it was meant to be that, you know, a few months later, I got sober. You know, after, you know, it had been about two years since I checked into rehab. I'd gone in and out, back and forth, sort of relapsing and um, under, you know, a really, really awful car accident where I totaled a car in San Diego from drinking for 12 hours. So uh, Portland is extremely special to me because I did get sober here. And I feel that walking into that restaurant that one day and, and meeting someone who, you know, I, I'm not even sure if this kid is sober anymore, but, you know, I have been able to stay sober. That's been, it was 11 years ago. And um, it was such an amazing foundation for everything. And, and it really like my life completely changed when that happened. Um, the other side of that is Portland. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of talk about Portland in, in the news right now. We are uh, a very liberal town, you know, as a state, it's not the most liberal state, but the population in Portland can carry the state um, because uh, it's loosely populated um, at, once you get out of, of Portland proper. But for me, you know, what really, really keeps me here 
professionally is the culinary scene. And we are a huge hub of just small, amazing restaurants. And I will say this, you know, Portland City is definitely one of the widest towns in America population wise, but we have so many different types of food here and the community is so tight knit and so close, you know, um, I can literally walk down one street in Portland, Oregon, and I can get amazing West African. I can get Argentine-inspired food. I can literally walk down the same street and get, you know, uh, Russian cuisine. So we have such an amazing hub. Um, you know, there's a very, there's a small Haitian community, um, you know, like throughout this pandemic, you know, a lot of the black chefs, we've, we've really focused on coming together and trying to support each other. So, um, you know, the ethnic community here is, is small, but it's, it's, it's really connected. And um, I do feel that, you know, culinary wise, uh, that's a really great stamp of what's going on in America and Portland, Oregon. Oregon State and Portland is also one of the few places where, you know, it's, the climate is almost like certain part of France, right? Where it rains a lot and sunny sometimes you get like morels, wasabi grows there, for example. Portland is, it reminds me a little bit of Sweden in a way. So Portland is this place where you kind of, I've always had positive experience around it. You, you, you smile and no one really, you know, and all of a sudden Sweden during the pandemic came on the world stage because Sweden picked a different path. And now Portland is on a world stage because the National Guard came, people have been demonstrating for 60, 70 days straight. What, tell, just tell me what's happening on the ground. Why now, why here? What is the temper? What is the boiling point? What's happening in the city? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Portland, you know, we are, are very passionate about everything political. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we've been protesting every single day since George Floyd was murdered. And, you know, it's it's on from the ground. It's, it's a little complicated. I'll, I'll be very honest. Um, but, you know, it just shows that, you know, we are very passionate about these things. Um, you know, there's Obviously, the focus needs to be Black Lives Matter. Um, but, you know, the subgroups of that, you know, it's we're talking about, you know, police brutality in America. So, uh, you know, we had a, lots of large groups of protesting um, throughout the whole thing. A couple of kind of the protest leadership groups kind of broke up, you know, um, and the movement kind of kept going. You know, um, there are a lot of different protest groups here um, that have formed, you know, through, through when, you know, starting when with George Floyd's murder, starting with Black Lives Matter, you know, a lot of big and small groups have formed throughout this. Groups are still forming. You know, the Wall of Moms is something that formed recently. You know, they formed when the feds moved into town. So we are passionate about these things. Um, what I, I will say is, you know, I think the bigger picture is we are lacking a unified voice. Um, and we are, you know, I feel this is a very still emotional stage. Um, you know, I think it's very heightened. I think the biggest issue with the federal guards here is them impeding on our right to peacefully protest. And there's definitely a back and forth here where we feel that we are not able to peacefully protest. So these protesters are agitating the federal agents um, and the federal agents 
are seeing this as crowds that are escalating, situations that are out of hand. So it's a back and forth, you know. Um, at the end of the day, you know, the movement, you know, and when I speak to my black friends in the movement who have been protesting every single day, you know, um, it, they and I are clear that we need to always be thinking about Black Lives Matter. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that's in the media is just taking away from the movement. And what we want is to be able to peacefully protest for Black Lives Matter. And there is a huge faction that also wants to be able to protest against police brutality and police reform in America and also in our city. Because just like every other American city, we have had Black men and women die at the hands of the police in this neighborhood, in our city, in our towns. And, you know, these are things that we protest against as well. You know, Portland has a very, very complicated history um, of racism um, since its founding, um, of Blacks being uh, regulated to certain neighborhoods, um, a lot of systemic racism against, you know, Black neighborhoods and Black people in Portland for, you know, as long as we've been a state, you know, um, just like every other American city. So, um, there's a lot there. But, you know, what we want is to be able to peacefully protest. Um, and, you know, I, I have been down there to the Justice Center. Um, I have seen it. Um, um, luckily, the night that I was down there, I was not tear, we were not tear gassed. Um, but all my friends have been tear gassed. Um, mothers, um, young people, um, you know, it's, um, it's, it's rubber bullets, um, pepper bullets. You know, um, it's pretty crazy. Um, but, you know, I think I think once we can get through this, I think, you know, like I'm a very solutions based person. And, and what I want for our city is for us to be able to find a place where we are working with the government. We are working with, you know, religious leaders. We are working with the people um, and we can all work collectively to move forward and make a plan for reform. You know, but I just don't think we're there yet. I think we're kind of running on a lot of emotion right now. So the latest was that the National Guards are, are pulling back, right? That, is that the latest? And yeah, what yeah. does this look like a month from now? What does it look like coming into the election? Will this escalate or this will this simmer away? What, where, what's your guess here? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, with if, the, the, if they leave, um, you know, um, we will still protest, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like the protest is going to stop, you know? Um, so I think we will still be protesting. We won't just be like, um, you know, waiting for these guys to come out of the justice center and, and waiting for them to, to tear gas us and, and rubber bullet us um, because we still have issues to resolve. You know, when people are protesting, you know, when I protest, like if I protest this week, I'm still protesting for Breonna Taylor. You know, like, where are, you know, her murderers? You know, like, what are we doing? You know, like, I'm still protesting for Ahmaud Aubrey. I'm still protesting for George Floyd. You know, I'm still protesting for, you know, the black men who have died at the hands of the police in Portland, Oregon. You know, so, like, I will still be protesting, you know, and, and a lot, all of us will still be protesting. You know, it'll just be a different type of protest. You know, we won't be protesting to get federal agents out of our city, you know. Um, so, like, this is far from over, you know. As the federal agents leave, you know, there's still a lot to protest for, you know, and like that's exactly what we're trying to say when we're into like, you know, approaching day 70 of protesting, you know. Wow. Well, that, that's beautiful because I do think that um, what we see on Instagram, what we see on social media is one version. But for me, it's like 
when I think about Portland, I think about you also. So it's like, and I'll think about your project of when is it going to open the restaurant? Is it going to wait? And yeah. you, as as people, we are we we live many different lives. The the chefing life is a you know obviously a reflection and a love letter back to the city, but you know you don't have to rush to open the restaurant. You obviously want this no. to pass a little. Yeah. <clears throat> you know I you know like I I really felt you know that I wanted to take this year and. Just really think about, like I've said before, what type of restaurant Portland needs, what type of restaurant I feel my state needs, my city needs, America needs. You know, I definitely know that bringing Haitian food front and center is extremely important to me. But, um, you know, I feel, you know, with everything broken down and everything taken away from us right now, it's really the best opportunity to make the best out of the situation is to rebuild um, with only the best parts. And, you know, I'm, I'm listening to, you know, former employees and, and how they feel like they were treated, you know, either by me or within this industry. And I'm seeing what's happening nationally. Um, and as we talk about better conditions for young cooks um, and better leaders, you know, I'm taking all this information and um, I'm grateful for the extra time. You know, um, I'm, I was hoping to open in January, but, you know, I'm probably going to open next summer. Um, you know, and just take my time and um, and just listen and 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 just be able to you know take everything that we have and, and rebuild in a good way. You know, like for me and for people like us, this is 100% what I do. You know, um, I am going to fight for my restaurant. You know, 100%. And I hope that you know I I pray and hope and I stand with all my colleagues who are, are working every day and hustling and and doing the best they can to you know fighting tooth and nail to reopen their restaurants as well. Um, because for a lot of us, this is exactly what we do, and this is the only thing that we do. Um, and we will fight to, 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 to be able to do it. You know, I think there's a lot of amazing things that happen in restaurants. You know, um, so many restaurants are owned or run by women or minorities in this country. Um, you know, they are such pillars for our communities. Um, they help the, the food chain of, you know, the farmers, the fishers, you know, uh, the growers, the artisans. It's, it's, a, it's a very closed loop circle and once one piece is, is is out of whack you know if restaurants are closed there's this whole crazy chain that that falls apart um you know and uh you know I, a lot of us start our careers in the kitchen you know the kitchen is one of the few careers where you can you know like not, not have any skill you can you know be just coming from jail um and and this kitchen will take you in and, and, and teach you craft so you know kitchens are important to me and um i'm listening and i want to rebuild is there one good thing, not the fact that we lost 150,000 people, but what as a black chef in this moment, is there something out of this horrible, difficult time that you find, you know what, there is a silver line and this is what I've learned? Yeah, I mean, I think the best piece is to when you have nothing, like anything is possible. So I think we're at a place where if you have a game plan, if you are a black person in America right now, I think the conversation is finally changing where there are people listening. So now is the time to have a game plan. Um, now is the time to, you know, look to your allies, look to your resources, um, be resourceful, be aggressive and have your plan um, and just go for, you know, whatever you've always wanted to go for, because there are actually people paying attention because of Black Lives Matter, um, which has a lot to do with the pandemic, um, which has a lot to do with just our history in America. And there are actually people listening now. Um, I think the best bet is to find the people who are listening, 
um, and to go for that goal that you've always wanted to go for. That is a beautiful message. And Chef, um, I see you soon. We're going to do a pop-up together. I'm so excited to talk to you. Every time we speak, I learn something. Um, and um, I had an amazing meal with you at departure. And uh, I'm just really, you know, so excited to be your friend and, and, and be part of your journey because it's a beautiful American tale, Haitian American tale. I just want to say thank you, you too. You know, you've been so at a major influence in my life. You know, being a young cook in New York City, you're definitely someone I looked up to. And um, I remember having, you know, dishes at Aquavit as a young cook, um, you know, on my day off. And, you know, like 20 years later, we are good friends and, and um, I still look to you with the same respect. So thanks for talking. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Brett. 
you know, or or Idlib or something. They're they're dressed in camo gear, uh, automatic rifles. I mean, they're they're going to battle, and it's you know Americans against Americans. Like this is a president sending soldiers uh, or, or militarizing law enforcement to go beyond the law to suppress. Yeah, there's another image here that I think. Um, We've seen Americans go against Americans numerous times. There's always been police against black people. So the images that are now being sent out to the world are much more diverse. They're, they're national guards against white people or any, any person. So I, I do think that that type of friction is what the government wants right now. They want chaos and mayhem all the way up to the election. But it's also important as, a, as, as people, as a city, don't go for that bait necessarily. You know, when I think about Greg and I think about Portland, you know, it's, it's amazing in the chef community, I'm sure just like music, when a city, something goes down in a city, I always think about which chef friend do I have there, right? Chicago, Austin, whatever it is, Detroit, Atlanta. And so, so when this happened in Portland, it, it doesn't become this, it becomes specific for me. Oh, I got Greg there. How's he doing? How's his family? And then we start texting, start talking. You know what I mean? And he's such a, he's always been, you know, he's on TV a lot, but he always talks about his Haitian side and puts that in the forefront. And he also talks about being from the West Coast. And when people say the West yeah. Coast, most people think about California, but he's, Cali, yeah, but he's, but he's like, no, yeah, I'm the other, yeah. the Northwest Coast. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's just nice yeah. to. No, but what, what I thought about when I, what I was going to say was when I thought about, uh, when I started reading about Portland was just the fact that uh, getting these images, seeing these images and the video footage of the violence between that the police were causing the population, the, the peaceful protesters of Portland was, is the president doing this just to get, uh, is it a photo op? Is it just to get the footage of, uh, is, it, is it him pandering to his base so he could say, look at these people, they're tearing down fences, they're throwing bottles at, at federal officers, you know? And it's a, a, he's practicing a, by any means necessary uh, uh, way of suppressing his own population. And, you know, what, what are the protesters going to do? Of course, the, the, their numbers swelled. Instead of being in the hundreds, all of a sudden they're in the thousands. And I'm just in awe of the population and the people of Portland for, and Chef Gregory, who's obviously been out there on the front line with people, for uh, sustaining that energy to go out and protest every night. It's incredible. But I'd like to rewind it a bit, Marcus, because Haiti is an interesting country. Absolutely. Right? Haiti is also like, think about independence, right? Haiti, you know, is strong. It kicked out the French. Um, you know, a lot of Haitians, when they came over to America, actually worked in the U.S. Army because they were that strong. And people knew that the Haitians were amazing to bring to, to battle, for example. And then ha Haitian culture in America is also giving us so much culture, right? Yes, we know the Fujis and Wyclef and Pras and all of that, of course. But, you know, when you go to a city like Miami, uh, Little Haiti's right there. It adds so much, you know, coolness to the city, food to the city, and just vibes that are just like strong. And you, you know you're in Miami. For me, it's like, when I'm in Miami, 
I think about Cuban culture, but I also think about Haitian culture right away, first thing. Tell me about Haitian food. I haven't had oh. Haitian food. Tell me what are some of the, you know, yeah, yeah. what do we eat when we're eating Haitian well, food? Well, I always feel like the two islands in the Caribbean that I feel that, you know, there are, you can taste Africa, it's Jamaica and Haiti, right? And in Haitian food, you have uh, this incredible rice, right, 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 black rice dish called John uh, John, which is made with a dried mushroom. So almost like, imagine like a risotto or like a great- Super umami. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so smart because they have to dry up the rice because they have to save it for the, you know, a bad day. That's super delicious. Then of course, their big celebration dish, independent soup, um, it's called soup jumon. Okay. So it's a pumpkin soup that is layered that you have, you could put some chicken wow. in and so on. But it's really to have that almost, the highest, grandest dish is a soup. And I just think that that, that says a lot. Mm, mm. And I love the fact that they have a dish that celebrates their revolution. A revolution, exactly. Uh, you speak about symbolism. And then uh, you, you go to Haitian dinner, you get griot and you get pickles. The, the spicy pickles are on everything and it's delicious. And you know, I think about, of course, Jean-Michel Basquiat has Haitian roots. And you know, it's like, it's all of these right. creatives to the world that, that, um, you may or may not know has Haitian background, and Greg is definitely one of those, and he's holding the flag up. There, there's so many things about Haiti, especially when you live in the East Coast in New York. Haitian culture is part of Brooklyn. When you think about Brooklyn, you think about the Jamaicans and the Haitian and Flatbush. Uh, but it's just, it just makes me smile because it's very- New Jersey. Yes, yes. It's a very warm culture, extremely warm in terms of people. Haiti is one of the countries that has been the hardest hit by the colonial heritage and the you know, post-colonial struggle. I think a lot of people don't know that in 1825, the French sent gunboats to Haiti. You know, Haiti, Haiti, after more than 10 years of revolution in 1804, they became the first uh, enslaved nation to break away from their colonial power, you know, it, it, which then Fidel Castro carried that tradition in Cuba, and Cuba broke free from their uh, post-colonial um, legacy as such. But so Toussaint Louverture, Dessalines, these black generals, these African-descended uh, generals, uh, uh, fight a war against Napoleon, who's basically the the most powerful. Uh, 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 you know, one of the most powerful country, uh, countries on earth at that time with, a, a, you know, a military and, 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 and a huge war economy. Anyway, in 1825, the French forced uh, by, you know, by threat of these gunboats and soldiers, they forced Haiti to pay the equivalent of $21 billion in 18, you know, it, so in 1825, the equivalent of 150 million francs that they asked for is, in today's money, $21 billion. Now, Haiti went on to pay off this debt until 1950. You know, so you talk about the problems with when people like uh, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates write about reparations, just presenting the idea of reparations being paid to the descendants of enslaved people in the Americas. And... And you look at the reparations that formerly enslaved nations like Haiti have been forced to pay, then that gives you a picture of why 
people have seen these images of of uh, destitution and poverty in Haiti. Then you have the earthquake in what, 2009 or 10? And what does, you would think that France would have a moral duty, right? To just send in, uh, send in soldiers, medics, doctors, and just like pay for it, you know? Just step up, how can I help? What do they do? Well, they don't do that, you know? Mm. But even think about the island itself, right? Uh, the island is called Española, the entire island, right? And uh, a lot of people always think Puerto Rican and Dominican culture are the most similar, and that might be in terms of language, but Española, the total island, where both Haiti divided, and right, Dominican Republic yeah. is, and you look at that border, that's just cut straight through. Down. So the, the colonization obviously have so many, many, many deep um, Wounds, you know, imagine if you're a family and you, you, you lived on, you know, you have family on both sides, for example. We look at these borders today and we look at it from a legit point of view. There's nothing legit about it. You know what I mean? Española was the island. People lived all over the island and all of a sudden somebody just put, okay, here is now Haiti and here is now Dominican. Puts a line straight through yeah. it. And, and um, you know, those are done and, and we, we kind of walk away from it uh, and, and don't think much about it. But of course that changes history and course and finances and people's past for generations to come. So, you know, I... I, I and, and, and just to not lose the reparations threads, because I, I had to dive into that for a second uh, when I was preparing for this episode. And um, British slave owners were compensated up until 2018, they were paid reparations for loss of income when, uh, when slavery was outlawed. Up until 2018, Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, Barbados, Bahamas, these Caribbean nations have been paying to England. Wow. Uh, up, until, up until just the other day. Wow. You know? It really, <laughs> it just really uncovers the fact of what the heritage of colonialism means today. You know, you have people like the ex-prime minister of England, David Cameron's family, he's, he's the descendant of slave-owning Brits, you know, and you think about these fortunes that, that uphold these great castles in, in England and these fine aristocratic families, and you think about where that comes from, and since that story is so seldom told and that information is so deeply buried, you know, people in the West tend to look at uh, Caribbean countries and say, oh, it's such a pity, it, it, it's so poor, and, uh, you know, uh, we feel for them and it's a, they're struggling, you know, uh, let's see if we can help. But why are they poor? They've been held on their knees. They've been suppressed and oppressed to this day. Wow. Well, it's amazing that that, little bit of information, right? That just sits there and it's like, it wasn't 1928, it was in 1968, it was 2018, which means that it's right now. And it's game changing and it's actually something that, you know, the deeper you dive into this, the more you learn, you, you, you realize it's right here in our backyard. So, you know, while I do feel like, you know, when you learn about someone like Greg, it's layered, and I'm so appreciative how, how he shares his journey, his life journey. And, you know, he struggled with addiction for a very long time, but now he's on the other side of it. And um, no, as a chef, I, 
I'm just very appreciative that he shares that story because, you know, our industry, both of our industries have a lot of people that, um, you know, um, struggle with addiction. And um, it's just something that um, I don't wish on my worst enemy. But, you know, we're only going to learn by people sharing. So I really appreciate uh, Greg for for um, talking about it. It was really beautiful having him on, Marcus. And you know, it makes me think because, of course, the stories of addiction in the music industry are well told and well documented. You know, you have the the Amy Winehouses and the the Janis Joplin's and the you know uh, the heroin and jazz, the heroin in in soul, the the you know the 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 the, the cocaine and and weed and both hip hop and rock, and it's just it's rampant and it's accepted in a way as a part of the music industry and the music landscape. And sometimes glorified, right? Yeah, and a lot of times glorified. I mean, <laughs> I remember listening to, to, to you know, hip hop in the early 90s and they were talking about Philly Blunts. And I, I, what, did, what do you mean Philly Blunts? What are they, you know? What's a Philly Blunt? And then that summer when I got to New York, my friends were like, yo, this is a Philly Blunt. You know, it's a cigar, right? A pretty cheap cigar. You open it up, you empty it out, you fill it with your weed, you reseal it and smoke it. And, and yeah, it adds some extra flavor. It's a nice smoke, man. Um, but yeah, th- these are things that I learned, you know, I, was, I, I learned how to smoke weed or, uh, through listening to hip hop music. Uh, hip hop and reggae music. That's what made me want to smoke weed. Like, okay, I want to, What's what's Bob Marley talking about? What's you know uh, uh, what's what's Guru and Gangstar? What are they? Why are they talking about this thing? Let me let me try this, you know. But I'm I up until finding out about you know Bourdain and Kitchen Confidential talking about his uh, you know what it was like behind the scenes of these fine restaurants. I had never thought of addiction mm. in the food world mm. being also a uh, so present. You know, our world are very similar, but I would say cooking is also part. What other profession is there alcohol around and you're supposed to lead a crew at the same 24 7 and you're supposed to lead a crew, but people are coming to your place to eat and drink. And as a chef or as a cook, are you being drawn into that? Because you admire, as a young cook, you admire the chef. And then you get to meet the customers. So it's the life of the party, right? So I, I think that um, a lot of people that we both know has, has been drawn into this, but it's also the only way to learn is by storytelling and learning from each other. So, you know, much respect to Greg for, yeah. for sharing and talking about it. Absolutely. And one last thing that, that, I, uh, that I just noticed when, when uh, listening to Chef Gregory, um, the fact that he's hoping to open his restaurant again next summer. Mm-hmm. I mean, how are you and people like Chef Greg and your, you know, people in your industry surviving? I mean, because that's talking about more than a year of closing your, your business. Like, how do you come back from that? Well, the, tr- the truth is the majority, we don't, right? So that question, how are we surviving? If I'm gonna, you know, both Chef Greg and I, we're extremely privileged. You know, we have, platforms that we can communicate such as this, but we can also, you know, um, do many different gigs and, 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 and so on to, to get by. But as an industry, we're not. The restaurant industry is going to transform itself and it's, it's not going to be the, the vaccine is here, the pandemic is over. It's going to be for years. So um, 
you know, I think when Greg says this next summer, it might be next fall. Do you know what I mean? Uh, end of the day, the pandemic kind of drives when there's going to be new openings and when there's going to be new things. But I also, as creatives, like you will put up an album. You will do, continue to create, right? Because it's, it's who you are. So we as chefs, we will work with food. It may or may not be in the restaurants the way we, you and I normally, you know, have known it. It might be in different ways, right? So, so that's where technology, that's where partnerships, that's where we're learning from each other is going to come in. And it's going to be rocky for a while. But if I could uh, bet on anyone, um, you know, I would bet on um, Greg, you know, in his, you know, from both his Haitian background, I know how hardworking his parents was, but also uh, what he's gone through in life and, and his love for, for Portland specifically, you know. And, um, you know, I, his food is so unique, so he has to cook. He has to keep bringing that out. So I know it's going to be delicious. It might be three months delayed, but we're going to go and visit it. I know that. I, I, that's what it boils down to, because it, for me, that, you know, the pandemic has had that effect, too. It's like, I have to rap. I have to spit, you know. That, that's, it's in my core, you know. And uh, I, so I really feel that. Uh, I can understand that drive that you as chefs have, that, like, I have to cook. Like, no matter what, right? Like, there's no sugarcoating it, right? Uh, it, mm. Next two years will be the worst our industry I've ever seen. A lot of my colleagues and friends, every day I get a text from somebody, I'm not doing this anymore, I'm closing my restaurant. And these are all bright, hardworking, intelligent people. They can do other stuff. But this is, when you're a chef, just like when you're a rapper, you're born to do it in a way. It's a calling, right? So sure, they can go and work with other things and other skills, but this is the thing they miss, you know? They miss mentoring people. They miss uh, holding vegetables and, and, and fish and meat in their hands. We miss uh, talking to our customer, talking to our vendors, being part of that incredible community that we call hospitality. And um, it, it ain't, it, the road ahead is not easy, but I know we're strong and we, we, it's, it's gonna be a bumper road. Well, Marcus, as always, man, beautiful talking to you, brother, and to, every, uh, to each and all of our listeners around the world, thank you for listening to This Moment Podcast. See you next week. Peace out. Eat well. Peace. This moment is produced by Mohammed El Abed. It's an ACAST recording and can be heard on all platforms. So stay tuned. More depth coming your way soon. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist-approved, so fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 